Arthur Conley spends the rest of the song hyping the great musicians who created the form. Lou Rawls, Sam and Dave, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, and James Brown. Kirby McMillan liked good music and wandered for years playing in various bands. Moving to London to try to join the Clash, as he often claimed. Or moving to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, because that's where Hunter Thompson could be found. And then Kirby washed up in the unremarkable Navy town of San Diego. Which is how I came to know him. Right about the time he adopted the persona of the Right Reverend Mojo Nixon. A one-man band, a mushroom maniac howling at the moon. Bashing out a bow Diddley beat with a battered sparklets water bottle down by the power lines. <laughs> this because he'd been passed over when Country Dick Montana put together the Beat Farmers. The cowpunk band so good that the LA Times rock critic Robert Hilburn called them the best American band to come down the pike since Credence Clearwater Revival. That was the crisis that created Mojo Nixon. This is American musical history, little known today. But for a few short years in the biker bars and cowboy beer halls on the hillbilly outskirts of San Diego, the Beat Farmers and Mojo Nixon and a handful of other Roots Rock groups, mostly forgotten today, including my own four-piece, The Outriders, who put out one vinyl LP ourselves once our record company in Austin crumbled like so many indie labels. Well, we all had a joyous music scene as lively as anywhere in America at the time, including Athens, Georgia, Tucson, Arizona, even Los Angeles. I know some of you living out in the desert today witnessed it all, and even remember some of it. I was having trouble keeping guitar players in my own band, and I just agreed to open a half dozen Beat Farmers weekend shows at Bodie's when I lost yet another guitarist. Country Dick had already made his hand-illustrated flyers for the month ahead, and wasn't going to stand for any backing out. So he must have talked to Mojo, because Mojo calls me... Country Dick says I gotta play guitar in Kenny Lane's band. He called Joe whatever made you sound the most Southern. And if your name didn't work as a Southern name, he'd make up a terrible nickname like Gopher Killer or Bullethead. So I got off pretty easy. I gave him the address for the air conditioning shop where we practiced, and he fleshed out our meager set list by singing Chuck Berry's The Promised Land, the Elvis Presley version, obviously, 
and by doing a mini solo set with his guitar and his five-gallon sparklets bottle, we did a live radio broadcast out of some retro car hop burger place in Santee, which might have been the first time the Reverend Mojo Nixon was on the radio airwaves. Did I mention that Mojo Nixon got us our record deal? That was when he spent a week in Austin, which would become a second home for him, especially at the Continental Club. But towards the end of 1985, he came back from Texas with some news for me. He says, Kennedy Lane, you know about the tailgaters? I told him that I did. The tailgaters were this swamp rock trio out of Texas led by Don Leedy, who's still gigging around Austin, by the way. Well, Mojo had met up with the guy who ran the tailgaters label, ran it into the ground. But the guy liked our demo tape, eight songs we put down on a reel-to-reel in our rehearsal space, my dad's air conditioning shop. And after about a year of waiting around, I got the dot matrix printout of the contract. I had my girlfriend's law school professor dad read it over, and that's how Mojo got us a record contract. The actual record never came out. Although the label did pay for Dusty Wakeman to mix the lackluster studio recording. Mad Dog Studios, that was Dusty's place, which was out in El Segundo or Torrance at the time, long before he moved to the Mojave. There's a story for another time about how we had to go up to Hollywood, my friend and drummer Sam Chamis and myself, and threatened to throw the record label owner out of his fourth floor office over Hollywood Boulevard. Because, of course, the guy had abandoned Austin for L.A. and was now sitting behind his second-hand desk, quaking in his shiny Melrose Avenue cowboy boots. Because I was ready, willing, and able to dangle him out the window until we got our master recordings back. And we got the tapes, got his... Very shaky signature on the release letter I had folded in my pocket. It did not take long at all. We put out the record ourselves, got the indie distributor Jem, J-E-M, to put it out. Got Dave Alvin's song publishing company to do our publishing. Got some left of the dial airplay. Managed to make the college music journal charts here and there. But it never really took off. Well, that scene was already in the rearview mirror. Not least because I was already over it. Songs I'd written when I was 17, recordings that were two or three years old. And despite the fact that we were still playing to a loyal crowd in our little town, the train had left the station. The beat farmers were long gone, touring forever lost an original member with the departure of my friend Buddy Blue. Mojo was off making a Jerry Lee Lewis biopic in Memphis with Dennis Quaid and Winona Ryder and John Doe from X. And I had just spent a glorious day with Hunter S. Thompson and decided then and there to 
retire from a music career that was stuck in the mud. I just remembered something. The night after hanging around with Hunter Thompson at the Radisson Hotel in Mission Valley, I opened for Jason and the Scorchers at the same club where my band opened for Chris Hillman and the Desert Rose Band, Del Fuegos, all these traveling Americana acts. Stuck in the local opener slot. Time to put it to rest, die with dignity. Half a year later, I was traveling around myself, alone, writing long articles for a glossy culture magazine nobody'd ever heard of. But they paid me, and they paid my travel expenses, sometimes. By the time grunge hit, I was living in Prague, writing for the expat newspaper and doing an afternoon show on Radio Yedna. I'd sort of go back and forth between journalism and book writing and radio and music for the rest of my life, apparently. People with better songs survived wrestler records. I mean, Lucinda Williams. But it was another year or so before she found another label, Rough Trade, which put it out in 1988, Dusty Wakeman produced. Widely acclaimed with classic American songs like Passionate Kisses and Change the Locks. I changed the name of this town. Her ultimate moment was sort of delayed until 1998-99, when she put out her masterpiece, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road, and became one of the all-time great singer-songwriters. Lucinda was on that Outlaw Country cruise last week, too. The one where Mojo played his last rock and roll show. Steve Earle, who co-produced, or pre-produced, Car Wheels, was on the Hillbilly Cruise boat as well. I heard Steve Earle's goodbye to Mojo message on the satellite radio the day after I heard the news. And that's when I pulled over and finally cried. Church of the Epileptic Jesus. That's right, I'm here at Jesus Motors. We want to save you money. We want to save your soul right here at J Motors. That's right. Walk this way, brothers and sisters. Picture your family in this fine automobile. Picture them, yes, say your family in this fine automobile. It's not a satanic automobile. No, 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 no. It's a Christian automobile. No car on the lots. More than $666 right here at Jesus Motors. So come on down. Bring the family. Bring the dogs to Jesus Motors. We want to save you money. We want to save your soul. We want to see you right here. Jesus Motors, 227 Salvation Pike, Cashflow, Kentucky, 0492. Every magical musical scene is short-lived by necessity. It can only burn hot and bright like Jack Kerouac's Roman candle romantic heroes. 
The Beat Farmers and Mojo Nixon were the two acts that caught a train to the promised land. They put out records, toured America, got some notoriety. Mojo even got on MTV, a regular presence on music television for a couple years. And his lunatic rants against MTV is what did it. He debated Pat Buchanan on CNN, got married at a go-kart track. And after four albums with his washboard-playing sidekick, Skid Roper, Mojo made his great Memphis rock and soul record, Otis. Produced by Jim Dickinson and featuring John Doe on the bass, Country Dick Montana on drums... And in true indie record company tradition, his label Enigma fell apart just as the album was getting out to the world. But having grown up in a radio family and having a persona that worked as well from a DJ booth as live on stage, Mojo became a disc jockey, his own weird twist on the FM shock jock. He retired from music, but always came back like he did for eight years of outlaw country cruise ship bacchanals. Like the one he played on February 6, 20 and 24, when he was still with us. who was such a fanatic for the music he loved. Soul music especially, but... also honky-tonk country, punk rock, folk singers like Phil Oaks, all kinds of rock and roll. Mojo loved Bruce Springsteen. We all did back then. Early on, Mojo and I noticed we both wore what he called Bruce boots. Those snub-nosed black leather biker boots with the steel rings at the heel straps. We both wore those short-sleeved gas station attendant shirts, too. His from the thrift store, mine from my day job, working all day at my daddy's garage, as Springsteen sang. Oh, we loved Darkness on the Edge of Town, and especially Nebraska, which had come out a year or two prior. We all did songs off Nebraska. Mojo did the B-side to Atlantic City. It was called The Big Payback, but working, working, working for The Big Payback, made for Mojo. The Beat Farmers did Reason to Believe, put it on their first album on Rhino. I was kind of moody then and now. So I did State Trooper with the band, real slow and menacing. We drove up to the old L.A. sports arena to see the E Street Band on Halloween night, first leg of the Born in the USA tour folding chairs on the concrete floor. Bruce played for three hours and then did an encore of Halloween novelty songs. Mojo about lost his mind. 
he was either standing on that chair, hollering, or jumping straight up and down like he had a pogo stick. But this was something I witnessed again and again. Once we drove up to the Palladium in Hollywood to see a couple of southern bands, more punk than cowpunk, whatever that was, Jason and the Scorchers and the Georgia Satellites. Their legend was already spreading from the underground. They played locomotive live shows, both bands. By that time, I was bouncing up and down all night, too. With Mojo and my friend and drummer Sam right up against the stage. Mojo cut people loose. He freed you from the ties that bind. It was a dance floor show, so we were all smashed together, half drunk off parking lot cocktails of gin and Mountain Dew. Going wild. I've often remembered that show as one of the best I've seen and heard. Just an explosion of energy and beautiful sound. Maybe five years ago, I'm driving around the desert with the Outlaw Country Station on, Mojo's Loon in the Afternoon weekday DJ slot, and he's got a couple of those guys in the studio, Jason and Warren from the original Nashville Scorchers. Mojo tells the story of going to that show at the Palladium circa 1985, how it changed his life. The greatest rock and roll concert of the decade, etc. Now, I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years at that point. The last time I talked to him, in fact, was on his politics talk show on Sirius XM. Around 2012 or so, when I was doing political whatever. But at that moment, I was just listening in on Mojo and a band we saw together and those nights of low-budget glory. I've had five defining influences in my life, on my life. I was lucky enough to have memorable meetings with two of them. Edward Abbey and the aforementioned Hunter Thompson. And even luckier to spend my formative years in the company of the other three. Country Dick and Buddy Blue from the Beat Farmers. And good old Mojo, the last of the five to depart our world. I guess that's why this one hit so hard. The years just keep rolling by, and it has been many long decades since I was a kid who needed to know everything immediately to do it all while there was time. That's a hell of a thing to lose when you're getting older, when it's absolutely crucial to do whatever else you're going to do. How do you not feel the devil's hot breath on your neck seeing somebody as vital and alive as Mojo go down at 66 and apparently on top of the game 
And I don't even believe in the devil. But I believe in death. Who is coming for me and for everybody else. Sooner or later, and it's leaning towards sooner. So tonight I want to remember how blessed I was to come under the influence of these towering figures. Everybody wanted to hang around those guys to bask in their glory. And for whatever reasons, a quiet kid of 17 was accepted into their inner circle. I slept on their floors, lost my money in country dicks poker games, was seduced by their ex and occasionally current girlfriends, did their drugs, drank their liquor, and borrowed their records and books like it was my own personal beat poetry library of Congress. That's why I never regretted skipping college. I was part of the Beat Farmers Graduate Program and Weird Old American Studies. Besides, I got to DJ on the college radio station and write for the Daily Aztec at SDSU just up the road from Bodie's. The Redneck Biker Bar next to Alberto's Taco Shop. For real money, my band would play frat parties where you were paid in both cash and cocaine by boys and pop collars and Ray-Bans who would shortly become the accounting firm vice presidents of the world. People who, in Mojo's eyes, got no Elvis in them. Well, that's how I'll end this tale. And I appreciate you indulging me tonight as I remember somebody who made a lasting impact on what's left of American culture. And who did it during the pastel and perm and plastic 1980s, looking out at the fake Cosby show world of the Reagan decade, Mojo could see that a little bit of Elvis Presley was still out there, whether in punk rock or the TV evangelists or the flashy redneck NASCAR racers he loved. For Mojo's third record, he organized a couple cars full of San Diego music people to drive up to the studio in L.A. where he conducted the album's background vocals on six or seven tracks. And that's how I was part of music history on that day as one of the Dinkleberry singers drunkenly hollering on Elvis is Everywhere. They even put my name on the record, along with everybody else crowded into the studio on that delightful day. So call some people over, pick up some barbecue and beer, and put on a Mojo Nixon record. And if you haven't talked to somebody in a long time, somebody who played such an outsized role in your life, why not give them a call tonight? Let them know while they're still around. Good night from the voice of the desert. That's right. You got that Elvis inside of you and he's talking to you. He says he wants you to sing. Everybody got to sing like the king. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like the king. Uh-huh. Get that leg going now. Uh-huh. And get your lip too. Uh-huh. Not no fool Billy out of lip either. Uh-huh. Everybody. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're rocking now. Uh-huh. Elvis is with us. He's uh-huh. with us and he's speaking to us. He says, people, uh-huh. he says, people, uh-huh. everybody, everybody got to sing.